Father, we do thank you for your grace and mercy, Lord, as we've been hearing your word and singing this morning. Jesus has done it all. Yes. We just surrender to you and pray that you have your way in our hearts and lives today and pour out your light and your truth upon us today, God, that we may be drawn closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Father Ronnie, for <clears throat> this opportunity. Thank you all for bearing with me. <laughs> well, um, I'm going to uh, talk about some things this morning for a little while that uh, um, that are very meaningful to me. I hope I can communicate uh, with appropriate enthusiasm uh, some of the things that I feel like the Lord has uh, kind of opened up to me over the last five or ten years so I'm just gonna just kind of maybe kind of <laughs> kind of be a hodgepodge so, of, of things I think they all are connected I hope you can see that connection uh, God is the connection, you know. It's like the, like the, uh, you know, the children's sermon uh, that the pastors give sometimes. The answer is always Jesus, you know, for the children. So, anyway, um, I know that this morning I may talk somewhat in terms that um, that might. Uh, seem a bit seem a bit heady uh, I don't know if intellectuals the right word I don't really consider myself an intellectual. I'm not sure what you have to be to be an intellectual but uh, but I know that uh, it can it can seem or appear that 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 my focus is on uh, ideas propositions what we think um, but <clears throat> I do not feel that I'm uh, unscriptural in in um, esteeming those things and valuing those things uh, you know I, I could bring to your mind many passages that speak about the importance of the mind in the Christian faith uh, set your minds Paul says on Christ on things above rather than things below and I like what's implicit in that verse is there's something uh, there's something there that that we can do with our minds. Uh, I think too, all too often we 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 sort of find the reality, the existential experience of our minds, of thinking, of mentality, just to be something passive. We get up in the morning, we're thinking. Uh, we, we think throughout the day, maybe not well, but we think nonetheless, or we get nothing done. But it's almost like, again, we're sort of following our minds instead of controlling our minds and directing our minds. We're sort of passive about it. So we need as Christians to, to uh, recognize the gift of, of, of our minds and to take them in hand, as it were, and set them on the appropriate things because as a man thinketh in his heart so is he so what we set our minds upon is going to dictate uh, the quality and the inner reality of our lives um, and I like what the scripture says as a man thinketh in his heart 
I think that's important. It's not just as he thinketh in his head. The heart needs to, or the head needs to sink into the heart, such that it, in a, in a sense, dictates what what are we willing, what are we deciding, what are we making decisions to do and not to do. So um, the mind we are to love God with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength. So, uh, so I want to help you to set your minds on things above this morning um, and specifically and this might almost seem trivial I think so much about our lives you know as we go through the years even a few years let alone many so many things that are so profoundly wonderful become trivial to us we just get so used to them that I think of an analogy of kind of like if you're born into a family that's just, you know, you're born into a billionaire's family and you're raised in this incredible, spacious, you know, uh, home, house with all the most modern technology and, and million dollar paintings, works of art hanging on the wall. And you grow up in that, do you think you'll really appreciate it? Probably not. Almost certainly not. It'll be like there'll be something else out there that you'll want that you don't have that you think, you know, woe is me, even, even with that kind of uh, givenness to your life. But, uh, you know, I believe that every one of us here today that we're born into something better than that. We're really, we really are. Uh, the thought occurs to me every now and then is you have, and I don't just mean I'm talking to me, but I'm saying this to you this morning. You have no idea how incredible you are. You have no idea how phenomenal, what a miracle, what, what a work of enormous, almost infinite complexity and beauty, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And what? We're just born into it though. We're born into these bodies, into these minds and souls. And it's like, oh well. <laughs> we really need to stop it and try to appreciate uh, the, wonder, the wonder that we are. You know, a lot of traditional preaching is, is about what what a mess we are, how messed up we are, and how, what, how worthless we are, and how unworthy we are. And you know, taken from a certain standpoint, that, that can at least be part of the truth, okay? I'm not saying it's not. But, but what, I, what I do feel is at times, and, and a lot of that's done to try to magnify the grace of God. It's like, you're such a piece of you know what? And why would God love you and care about you and choose you? That's just the enormity of God's grace. Well, that sounds sort of compelling in, in its own way. But what if this, uh, another part of the story that's just as true is that you are profoundly precious to God because He made you. And He made you in His image. And Again, that's just one of those concepts that I think we just barely scratch the surface on to be told and to hear, I'm made in God's image. 
so what? I mean, that's kind of the way we act, even if we don't say it. You know, everybody's made an image. I mean, it doesn't make me special. Well, no, it does. Because, you, you know, you're as, you're as unique as, as fingerprints and snowflakes, but even more so. Uh, and so, I, I don't know, I just wish I could encourage you, as I know I need encouragement in as well, to just sometimes stop, stop and reflect on how, how wonderful you are. I know that sounds New Age-ish maybe or whatever, but I'm telling you, I really do believe it's biblical. I believe it's why God so loved the world. He didn't just love the world because it's like, oh, I want to show the world how gracious I am. It's such a piece of whatever that, you know, but, but I'm so gracious, I'm going to show how great my grace, grace is by just loving this sorry, low-down, good-for-nothing world. No. I think the world is precious to God because He made it. Because it's all sustained even in His very being. It's made by Him and we especially are made in His image and He treasures us. We're like the lost coin that the widower has to find. We're like the lost sheep that the shepherd will leave all to go after. We really are precious to God. And it's not... In a sense, I mean, it's all grace, okay? It's all grace because it's all given to us. I didn't deserve to be born. I didn't deserve to exist. But God chose to do that nonetheless. But that doesn't lessen my worth before God. That doesn't lessen your worth so much so that God would give His only begotten Son to pay the price of redeeming you and me and buying us out of the slavery that we've fallen into. So, you know, reflect on that. I encourage you, just try to be amazed at, at your very existence <laughs> occasionally. For, you know, instead of just thinking about the problems that you have in life, Try to reflect on how amazing it is. You know, that's one of the biggest, most fundamental questions that philosophers ponder is, why does anything exist? <laughs> why does anything exist? Well, we may, not under, we may not understand why, but we know why. We know it's because the God of self the self-existent God, the one who says, I am that I am, which kind of is it's, you know, some mysterious proper name for God, Yahweh. But, but what, it, what it at least seems to point us in the direction of is I am the eternally self-existent one. I'm the ground of all existence. Everything that has existence exists because of me. What does Paul say in Acts 17 when he's quoting from the pagans? He says, in Him we live and move and have our being. Paul evidently thought that God was in complete agreement with the pagans, on that account at least. And it's very noteworthy to me that it's like Paul recognized that all truth is God's truth. It doesn't have to come just from Scripture. It can come almost from anywhere. Um, and so we need, we need to embrace the goodness that, that 
our being exists in His being. We misconceive of God by thinking of God as one being, one great being among many other beings. That's just not the way it is. Anything that has being has its being grounded in the being of God. And so we all owe, out of the fullness of His being, out of the overflow of God's being, we exist, we live and move and have our being. So that's all part of, you know, all that to me just, I'm like the blind man who's just groping after the truth. Again, it kind of it says that in Acts 17, it talks about how God's desire is that, that we might grope after Him and somehow find Him. But Paul says, but He is not far from any one of us because in Him we live and move and have our being. In fact, He's so close to you that you'll easily miss Him. God's presence is so imminent. If He were not close, you would not exist. He would cease to exist. You would die if, we, if He withdrew His presence. Now, I'm not talking about His felt presence. There's something else when sometimes you sense the presence, the reality of God. That's, that's in a sense extraordinary. Uh, and, and we all love to, I know I do, love to experience that sense of His presence. But in a way, it's just a manifestation of what is con constantly hidden, which is His sustaining presence in our life, in our very being. That's why I think what the contemplatives plug into is just being quiet, stilling their souls and stilling their minds before this reality in which they're swimming in and becoming aware that God is here. He's here. He's now. And becoming aware of that and entering into the reality of it in terms of consciously appreciating and being aware of it and setting our minds upon it. One thing that I would like to share today, and to me I've already, again, my understanding of it, which is so, so limited. Um, but, you, but you know, I've already said some things about existence. But it's, existence is a good thing. Wouldn't you agree? It's good to exist. <laughs> to be or not to be, it's not really a question. You know, I want to be. I want to exist. And I want to exist, uh, you know, in, in God's world and God's purpose and God's plan. And we all know intuitively, I think, that this is, this is, not, this is, not, this is not God's goal. We look around us, it's like we intuitively kind of just know this in our very bones. That this, this is not the ultimate order of things. This is not God's ultimate goal and plan. And yet, and yet there's a sense, I believe, if we're perceptive and still and quiet enough that we also perceive there's a movement toward that goal. There, there's an end point. There's a goal. There's a, the, the Greek. The, the Greek word is the telos. It's it's a purpose toward which we are individually and collectively moving. And God has a purpose. 
He has a grand purpose for all creation. And He has a specific purpose for you and me being part of that creation. And creation is, you know, the physical world, the created world and its order is so important to God. And sometimes we can become some kind of Gnostic and the Gnostics kind of divorced the physical from the spiritual and they saw the physical as being, you know, become, ultimately it's, it's fallen, it's just bad and, you know, God's just going to get rid of it and what we need to do is just to rise above the physical and to the immaterial and the spiritual. Again, that's, that's not biblical. That's not Jewish. It's not Christian. It's not scriptural. And that whole thing was proven in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, He could have just died for our sins and then ascended to heaven as a spirit if that had been the case. But no. He died and on the third day He was raised again. That same body transformed, I believe, into a spiritual body, which doesn't mean that it wasn't physical. Just means there's there, there's a, there's an an added dimension that was manifest in his being as a physical spiritual person and being as the Son of God is verily God in the flesh. But, but God shows His commitment to creation. God's purpose is to redeem creation. The Scriptures make this clear. It's not just to redeem human beings. It's to redeem all of creation. That's God's heart. God loves the cosmos. That's what it says when it says He so loved the world. It doesn't just mean He loved people. It means He loved His creation. He loved the whole cosmos so much that He sent His Son. And He sent Him to redeem and to buy back all of creation. All of this again is is uh, is is uh, especially touches on for me um, something that is has in in, in in my recent history I don't, I don't know how long exactly it's been but I know I'm fascinated with this uh, particular subject this particular perspective and aspect of God's being uh, of his um, of his attributes and uh, and it, and it all started out, started out for me one day as I was preparing to share a message uh, out of Exodus 33. And you all know the story. It's one of the high points, I believe, of the Old Testament. And that's where you know, Moses is going up on the Mount of God. <clears throat> and you know, it's kind of like you think about the genie and, and the bottle, and at least I do. <laughs> It's like you have one request, you know, maybe. Maybe you have three. I don't know. But anyway, in this case, of course, obviously, I'm not talking about a genie in the Bible. I'm talking about the God of all creation. But Moses gets to stand before God and he gets to make, of course, God didn't say he could only make one, but he made one request. Anybody remember what that request was to God? Not <clears throat> hmm? It, well, it was. It, that, that's in there. But he says to God, show me your glory. He said, show me your glory. Now, glory is an interesting word, isn't it? What does it mean? I'm really asking, not rhetorical. 
What does glory? What does glory mean? It's hard to define, isn't it? We kind of know what it is, but some people call heaven glory. Okay, it's glorious, no doubt, absolutely. What? Awe and wonder. Okay. Yep. It evokes awe and wonder from us. The best, I think, the best way I can, the best thing I can come up with. Um, of course, it has it has a connotation of weight. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote the, wrote the weight of glory. Um, so it it denotes or connotes weightiness. Of course, that, that, what does that mean? That just kind of means it's substantial. It's, it's weighty. It's real. I mean real. Uh, it's, it's not just a flighty, ethereal, you know, thing. Uh, it's, it has weight and it has bearing and it makes an impression and it does stuff. It gets stuff done. So a lot of times glory is equated with strength. And... And in the Old Testament especially, the, uh, you kind of have the idea of the outshining. It's like the, the inner reality and character and being of God and how does it manifest itself? How does it shine out? Okay? And what does God... It's really interesting. What does God say to Moses? Well, he says a lot of things, but the main, one of the main things he says is, well, he said, you know, he says, I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock and cover because no man can see me and live, but you'll get to see my hinder parts. And so all that's like, whoa, I don't know what all that means. But here's what really interests me is he says, basically he says, yes, okay, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. That was His answer to show me your glory. I will cause all of my goodness. He didn't say I'll cause all my sovereignty to pass in front of you or all my power to pass in front of you. He said I'll cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I think that's significant. And I think that, that in our thinking and our theologies about God, sometimes we can lose sight of this fundamental truth or reality about who God is and the outshining of His perfection and being is that at the very core, God is good. God is good. What is, what is goodness? Uh, are you utterly convinced that God is good? Do you ever do you ever doubt? Do you ever wonder <laughs> that God is good? And maybe do you ever wonder if you even know what goodness is? Because sometimes people would define goodness by saying, well, goodness is defined by who God is. And God is defined by what goodness is. And so, of course, you, you call that equivocation. That just means you're basically saying one thing is the other thing, so you're really kind of not saying anything. You're really not defining anything. You're not explaining or helping at least me to understand anything. No, I, I, I believe 
And, and there are you know, theological, biblical reasons that I believe this. One, chief among them, the fact that I am made in the image of God, that you are made in the image of God, that when Jesus turns to the crowd and He says, and I just think this is a wonderful, it's such a simple statement, it escapes us. We read past it, we gloss over it. And Jesus turns to the crowds and He says, Judge for yourselves what is right. Wait a minute, you're telling human beings to judge for themselves what is right? Don't we have to have something else to appeal to, some other authority, you know, to be able to, to discern what is right? And, I, and this, any sermon can die, die the death of a thousand qualifications, and so I don't want to overqualify that. But, you know, obviously we can misjudge. We can have poor judgments, wrong judgments, and Jesus wasn't saying that we're all just perfect in our, in our moral judgments. But I think he was saying something else positive on the other hand, and that is that in a sense God, God, God entrusts a certain measure of judgment to us. Paul says, do you not know that someday we will even judge the angels? Uh, of course, he's, he's speaking definitely of believers there, I would think. Uh, and, but Jesus just seems to be talking to the crowd in, ma in mass. But... I just think that's significant again though that, that there's something in every human being and I think again it's rooted and grounded in the fact that we're made in the image of God. We're made to be like God. We're the only creatures God ever made to be like Himself. And there's something in us within our moral compass, within uh, our sense of conscience, uh, that there's something that unless we have depraved our conscience unless we've seared it with a hot iron of just re re rebellious sin over and over and over again that we have a sense of what's right and wrong and we have a sense of what is good and what is evil. You know, when you, when you eat something that's good we say, mmm, that's good, right? You just... Who taught you that that was good? Did anybody... No, no. You just have an innate intuition that mm, this is this is good. Why? Because it's fitting. Because it satisfies something in me. It fits together with something with 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 something about my taste buds. I, I didn't create my taste buds. I didn't give them purpose and place and presence, but God did, and. I believe all these things that we that we experience in our human in our embodiedness and being human and being embodied and living and walking and moving through this world every day, there's something, there's there's an analogous spiritual truth for almost everything we're experiencing. God is teaching us. That's why that's why Proverbs says, go, you know, go to the street, go to the ant. Look, God's wisdom is crying out to us every day. And we're often just, you know, we're like, God, I just need you so bad and you know I'm hungry for you and I'm thirsting for you. And and those those desires are obviously good and to be encouraged, but what we need to 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 wake up to is there's a way in which day to day it's pouring forth speech. Everything around us, the Logos, the Word of God, Jesus Christ, is manifesting Himself to us through the most common things that we take for granted. 
God is speaking. And you know what He's speaking chiefly about? His goodness and His love to you and to all. And we just really need to reappreciate. I don't, I don't know if re we just need to appreciate it, which means wake up. We need to be woke in the best sense of the word. We need to wake up. And we need to taste and see that the Lord is good. It's an interesting combination of, you know, experiential metaphors there. Tasting and seeing. And these are things that we can experience. And I really don't believe... And look, I, don't, I never... I believe, I personally, this in my life after 64 years, being raised in the church, raised by a pastor, uh, and, and a pastor's family, um, exposed to these things from my, from my youth, you know. I just believe there are a lot of things that I was taught, and a lot of them weren't even uh, consciously taught to me. They were just taught by, by you know, practice, pattern, design, habit, uh, unconsciously, unspoken, just taught, impressed on me. I was conformed and formed by all these influences by the family I was raised in, and the things I was explicitly taught from the pulpit by my own father. Many of them I, I still esteem and believe and thank God for. Uh, but there are, there are some things that, that I, I just think we need to, we really do need to reevaluate. We really do need to question some things. And um, especially when we run into passages of Scripture in the Bible that seem to sort of push against maybe some of the things that we've been taught. It's like, Instead of just glossing over and forgetting or trying to cram it, you know, like a piece of a puzzle that you just cram it into the board because, you know, i got to make this fit. Maybe we need to set it aside and every now and then just look at it again and say, hmm, this is, this is interesting. And I think there are pieces of the Bible that are like that that, that, we, that may not fit in our system, which means we, ne we may need to renegotiate our system instead of that piece that doesn't fit in. Uh, and I don't remember where I was when I got off on that point, but anyway. <laughs> uh, so, 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 I'm talking about uh, the goodness of God. I'm talking about um, how fitting a, th a good thing is in our experience of tasting, ex uh, experiencing God. Um, uh, is something again that I believe that we're like the fish in the water. We don't even know there's water because the water's just always been there. We've always been in it. Uh, it's been in us, and we failed to perceive. That's that's why again that uh, so much of what I've read in the past years about. Uh, contemplative prayer, the contemplative life has had such an appeal to me because I believe that there's something there where these, these people, uh, these mystics uh, have, have plugged into something and it seems to have a lot to do with just being, being getting away from the rush and the hurry of life and being still and being quiet and just being aware of the presence of God. 
and, and just refocusing, reappreciating that reality in our lives. But the goodness of God, again, is I think something that we fundamentally we, we need to... This is one of the things we need to set our minds on. Whatever, whatever things are good and pure, we need to set our minds on these things. And the chief and preeminent good of all is God Himself. God Himself, the Trinitarian God. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I believe that one of the reasons that that some of my views and perspectives have changed over the last few years is because it finally, you know, <clears throat> for 15 years or so, I found I was raised Southern Baptist. I don't know if that means anything to anybody here, but it means something to me. I was raised Southern Baptist <clears throat> when I was a young, young adult, married to Pat. We started attending a Presbyterian church, Riverwood Presbyterian here in town. And we became Presbyterian, which meant a pretty somewhat significant theological shift for us. It did, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying day and night. Obviously, there are a lot of things in common between just evangelicals in general and Presbyterian, Reformed, Calvinist people in particular. But still, there was a pretty, pretty significant uh, shift in some things uh, that, that, are, that are pretty important and pretty critical. Um, but one of the things that drew me to the Presbyterian Church was just how seriously they took Scripture, how deep they wanted to go, and how studious they wanted to be. And also, one thing that attracted me was it didn't matter who it offended. If, if they believed, like, you know, let's say, for example, and maybe especially Romans 9 or 9 through 11, talking about the you know, sovereignty of God and God predestining certain uh, you know, ones to... To wrath and others not, you know, and it's like it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it ticks you off or offends you. It's what the Bible says, and the Bible, the Word of God, the Bible is the final authority in all things for us. So, you know, I kind of, I was, I admired that. I admired, you know, that uh, that courage. That uh, you know, we're going to believe this no matter who it, who who doesn't like it. <laughs> but. Uh, Here's one of the things, though, that I wanted to share today um, that I came to appreciate and, and I, I hope I'm learning more and better with every day. <clears throat> and that is this. <clears throat> that the Bible and its place, and this is one of those things that we're taught, again, sort of, Without anybody having to say it verbally, if, if you're part of a congregation or a church or a denomination that holds certain things to be true, they rarely, sometimes rarely ever have to be explicitly taught. They're just assumed in everything else that is taught. And one of the things that I've found for myself at least in, uh, in being part of the Presbyterian, Presbyterian Church in America particularly was um, you know, it, it was the importance of, of systematic theology. That there's a system, you know, where things are laid out propositionally and everything has to fit together very logically, as tightly as possible. And one thing leads to another and they fit together. And so it's just a nice, you know, you have a question, you just plug it into the system, out comes the answer, you know. <laughs> so, that, you know, that gives you, that gives you kind of a, 
I don't know, intellectually it gives you a warm fuzzy. It just, you know, you feel good, you know. And, and you like to hear people preach with great authority that, that they know, I mean, they know A, A, B, and C. I mean, they just know it. it, it and they can point you to the passages of Scripture that prove it. They can cite text that the Word of God says it, that settles it. But what I came to realize as I wrestled and grappled with certain, certain things that are believed by uh, people that are in the Reformed faith, um, I came to realize... I, I came to realize that the Bible is not two-dimensional. <clears throat> it's not two-dimensional. In other words, it's not black and white. The Bible is not black and white. I would love for it to be black and white. I'd love for it to just be all, you know, but I'm sorry, if you read it seriously, you will find out soon thereafter there are at least a few things that are important things that there's some gray in there. And it's like, I don't know how to fit these together. I don't know which one, which one goes on top of the other in terms of hierarchy or magisterium, as they call it. One the truth supervenes all of the others, and they all have to fit up under it somehow, logically, if possible. But no, I'm sorry. That's just not the way the Bible is. The phenomena of the Bible of Scripture is just not given to us like that. It may be presented on a platter that says all this fits together, you know, very nice and neat and logically. But if you really get to exploring it, 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 it's, it is not always the case. And I'm in no way denying that there are certain central fundamental truths that are very clearly taught in Scripture. Example would just be the Apostles' Creed. Everything that's in the Apostles' Creed, I believe, is taught forcefully and clearly unambiguously in Scripture. Beyond that, there's debate. And why do, not, why do denominations exist? They exist because we insist on making things clearer than God has. We like for things to be clearer. And, and again, it gets, apart from that, there's this sort of, you know, the, the term cognitive dissonance. It's like, uh, I don't know, and I don't like this. I don't like having distance in my mind. I like it all just to be harmonious and all fit together, and you know, there'd be no questions, no gray areas. That's what I would prefer. And I believe that that's coming. Maybe. Maybe there will always be some mystery because God is so deep. God is so deep and wonderful and profound, infinitely so, that we'll spend eternity, I think, searching out the treasures and the wonder of His glory and His goodness. But, but here's, here's a passage of Scripture that, sort of, and, and somewhat ironically, it happens in those, in those three, three uh, chapters where the Reformed perspective is most heavily taught, Romans 9 through 11. And perhaps interestingly, it's taught in the very last. It's kind of like, this is the conclusion that we should come to. And we need to anticipate the end from the beginning. You know, and it might help us to make it through the beginning to the end. 
uh, and come out better on the other side instead of thinking, oh, I've got this figured out in chapter 9. Now I've got to make chapter 10 and 11 fit into chapter 9. Sometimes that's just not the way Paul writes. That's not the way the Holy Spirit has revealed the truth to us. Sometimes it's a constrained thing that just sort of opens up suddenly and surprisingly and shockingly as if we read on and we let it. That's why I prefer if an interpretation of Scripture is constrictive and narrows something about God, then I'll question, I'm going to question it. And in other words, if there's a passage over here that seems to be big and generous and large about God, and then there's another one that seems like God is so narrow then I'm not going to let the narrow one supervene over the large one. I can't. I just... I won't do it. <laughs> I'll have to interpret the narrow one by the large one. Say, so, yeah, in a certain way, in a certain perspective, yeah, that's true. But the bigger truth is, this is how big God is. God is just so big, so wonderful, so measureless and strong. The love of God is greater far. We sang that last week. It's one of my favorite songs. To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. That's how big, I mean, immeasurable the being, the being of God, the good being of God, who is love. That's our God. And one of the passages that, um, that kind of opened my eyes, I'm actually going to turn to this one, and I'm going to be through soon. I'm, I'm sorry. I can't preach, you know, 30-minute sermon. It's just, just impossible for me. Yeah, that's part of being a Presbyterian. It ruined me. I could preach an hour and nobody really seemed to care. They woke up in the end. So anyway, Romans eleven twenty-eight. Listen to this. This is interesting. Because Paul's been talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. And what's the place of the Jews? You know, he begins in Romans 9 by, you know, I could wish myself a curse on, you know, on behalf of my people. So it's like, how do we deal with... All everything that's happened in the Old Testament and the promises to the Jewish people, what is, where is that in light of everything I've said for the first eight chapters talking about the revelation of God in Christ to Jews and Gentiles? And so he's grappling with that. And so here, toward the end of this whole discourse, he, he says this. And one day I finally just saw it, you know. And he says... And I don't, this is RSV. I really don't, I kind of like some other translations that, that tend to say, from one perspective, it says, as regards to the gospel, he's talking about the Jews, as regards to the gospels, they are the enemies of God. Okay? Flat out, black and white, plain, the Jews are the enemy of God. Okay? As regards to the gospel. And again, some translations I like it said from one perspective, okay, okay, and they're enemies of God for your sake. And of course, he's just kind of talked about how their resistance to the gospel has opened up the gospel to the Gentiles, okay. But as regards are from the perspective of election, they are beloved for the sake of their ancestors. There's a whole world of learning in that one verse when it comes to biblical interpretation. If, 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 if we could ever acknowledge what's there, that, look, the Bible's not two-dimensional. It's not black and white. It's three-dimensional. And it's just like any three-dimensional object. I could hold up this crucifix here from one side and you looked at it and I said, now is Jesus on the cross? And you said, no. 
And that's from your perspective. But if I turn that cross around, yeah, Jesus is on the cross. He isn't on the cross and He is on the cross, depending from which perspective you're looking at. And I don't mean to make contradictory nonsense. I'm not saying that that's what I'm going after or that's what Scripture gives us. Not at all. But what I am saying is that Scripture is nuanced. It's nuanced literature that God sovereignly brought together over time as He inspired various people to write. And we get into such trouble with literalism and, try, and with our systems, trying to make everything and coming to Scripture as though it were a book that could that we could fit into a system like that. And I'm not saying none of it's systematic because, yeah, you could argue that you can have a broad kind of system, yes, because there again there are certain fundamental truths that are beyond doubt that I think Scripture reveals to us. But then there's a lot there that we find ourselves in Bethel. We find ourselves like Jacob, wrestling with God. It's like, God, I don't understand this. But what we should understand after the wrestling is over is that the God with whom we wrestled is good. And He wouldn't give us the time of day, let alone wrestle with us, if He didn't love us dearly. So Scripture, the truths of Scripture... We uh, another example of this is the Bible says the the Bible clearly depicts us as enemies of God. Okay, we are born we're born enemies. Okay, we're set against God. We're averse to God. We are sinners. The, to, the Reformed love to say we're totally depraved, which they don't usually mean what the, what it sounds like. It just means that sin is. Influenced every aspect of our being. Doesn't mean that we're as sinful as we could possibly be. Totally, total depravity. So, so, so we're depicted from one perspective as willful enemies of God. But we're also depicted from another perspective as people who have been taken captive by Satan against our wills. But we've been taken captive and in a sense made to do His will. Okay? So, I, I could give several more examples of this and I won't, but, you know, again, let, let's, you know, uh, and I'm not sure at all, again, I, I knew I was going to stand up here and sort of preach out of my terrible notes and extemporaneously and all that stuff. But So, I, may the Holy Spirit bring together what I, what I have divided, may He join together. Uh, and may it uh, encourage and challenge us. Um, again, especially above all things, I, I, I want to I close with this, just to reiterate. Uh, I guess I wanted to talk about the nuance and the three and the three-dimensional reality of truth, because when I'm telling you about how good God is and how how wonderfully made you are, you might find a lot of verses to contradict that. Okay, and you'll probably find a lot of people who will contradict it. Oh no, you're you're you know, God just loves you because He's just trying to prove a point. He doesn't really, I mean, yeah, he does and he does, you know. No, uh-uh. Uh, 
God is good. He loves His enemies. I'm telling you, that's one of the most remarkable things about the New Covenant and the New Testament that was revealed so clearly in that Paul says in Romans 5, in this the love of God is proven to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While, and then he says like in two verses from there, while we were God's enemies, Listen, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled. He didn't wait till we weren't His enemies to reconcile us. Look, wrap your mind around that. I mean, I don't know how to, but I'm just saying, I'm trying to say, I'm ter doing terribly, but God is just good beyond your imagination. And that goodness is reflected in your very being. You know, the question that was, you know, I've heard raised through the years is, are people fundamentally good or are they fundamentally evil? That's a good question, isn't it? Well, from one perspective, <laughs> I can say, yeah, they're, they're born into sin. They're born in sin. They have a sin nature. They're fundamentally evil. But from another biblical perspective, I could say, they're the offspring of God. They're the offspring. That's what Paul says in Acts 17. We are all the offspring. Offspring is another word for children. That's all it is. We're all God's children. Now, I, used to, I, I was taught when I was younger, that's, that's what liberals believe. You know, we're all God's children. Oh, no, God. Well, some of us are children of Satan. Some of us are children of God. Again, what does Scripture say? Jesus says that there are children of Satan. He calls some people children of Satan, right? Well, how can they both be true? Well, I may not know, but I believe it. I believe there's, from one perspective, people are living and acting as though Satan were their father. They're liars like him. But from another, and I think more fundamental reality of their very being, they're the offspring of God. They're God's children, living in rebellion. They need to be reconciled. They need to be brought back. And that's what Jesus came to do, to destroy the work of the devil who's alienated us from the Father, who's taken us captive to do His will, and who's imprisoned us in sin. We're not there, I think, from one perspective, voluntarily. I didn't choose to be born into sin. Did you? I didn't. But I was. But God loved me. He made me fearfully and wonderfully. And He loves me still and will love me to the end. And His love endures forever. That's the kind of goodness that is exemplified in the glory of the God who made you, who loves you, who gave Himself for you. Amen.